Hello, and welcome to Making the Case, a podcast produced by the Tennessee Attorney General's Office. I'm Samantha Fisher, Communications Director and Host. The Tennessee Attorney General's Office is the law firm for the state and manages a wide variety of cases, antitrust, consumer fraud, environmental enforcement, and much more. The work is complex, challenging, sometimes even controversial. If you like history and law, come along with us for Making the Case. Constitution Day is an American federal observance that recognizes the adoption of the United States Constitution and those who have become U.S. citizens. It is normally observed on September 17th, the day in 1787 that delegates to the Constitutional Convention signed the document in Philadelphia. And here to discuss our founding documents is Tennessee Court of Appeals Judge Andy Bennett. And Judge Bennett was also the Chief Deputy of the Attorney General's Office from 1997 to 2007. He, he kind of serves as our de facto historian, and we love to have him in the office and, and certainly on our podcast, Making the Case. Judge Bennett, thank you so much for your time and, and for doing some research on this for Constitution Day. Take us back to 1787, to that summer in Philadelphia where our, our founding fathers were there, and, and, and they're trying to work out these articles, and they're, it's just not ready yet, right? Well, it took it took from uh, late May of 1787 to the middle of September uh, to hammer this document out and put it in the final form. Uh, even even as late as the first of September, all they had were a bunch of resolutions, and they formed a committee on style and arrangement to put finalize the document. Yeah, what is this even going to look like? You, right, yeah. right. The, they just had resolutions. It should say this. It should say that. You know, everybody so, needs a good editor, right? And uh, you know, Madison had is obviously known as as sort of the founder or father of the Constitution, uh, but even Madison said that the final style and arrangement uh, belonged to uh, Governor Morris. Who's uh, that guy? <laughs> well, he wasn't a governor. That was his name. Oh, uh, his okay. name was Governor, and yeah. uh, uh, it, it's spelled a little differently from that. But uh, we only know how to pronounce it actually because uh, um, John Adams' wife Abigail uh, spelled it phonetically, oh. and and so we know how to pronounce it. Morris was, a, was an interesting guy. He was he was very smart, and uh, he uh, he wrote. Uh, like I said, he made the arrangement, and he wrote the preamble. Ah, the part everybody knows. Yes, we the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote it, uh, first of all, he, wrote, he, he said we the people instead of the original uh, resolution of we the states uh, because the people were going to ratify the Constitution through uh, state conventions. And so he, he wanted... The people to be the the ones who implement it, uh, not the states. The first it, three words. That's just so incredibly significant. It is. Yeah, it is. And and uh, you know another reason for saying we the people instead of we the states and listing the states like they originally planned to was that uh, they decided it would only require nine states of the thirteen 
uh, to approve the Constitution for it to go into effect. So, you know, if some states didn't ratify it, then then listing those states would not be 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 good. So, he began it with "We the People," and then he provided a mini essay on the purposes of government. You know, to to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Mm-hmm. Uh, those reasons were all things he he found in the debates through the summer of uh, about what the government should be able to do and what the government should be. And he decided he, he, to put that right in the front, which I think was brilliant, and it was brilliantly executed. Uh, those words are, are words we all hear when we're in school. Yeah. We don't, we don't necessarily hear everything in the Constitution, but we hear the preamble. Morris was, a, was an interesting fellow. He, uh, he, he had an amputated leg. Uh, so he he had a peg leg made of oak. Oh, yeah, probably and not in, entirely uncommon in those days. No, but, yeah. uh, he liked to dance. Okay, <laughs> he liked to go for long walks. So he he didn't let it stop him. Uh, he was known as quite a ladies' man too. But uh, he loved a good joke. Okay, you know during the convention, uh, it said that uh, he bet Alexander Hamilton that. Uh, that he could uh, make the general uh, uh, smile. General Washington? General Washington. I guess General Washington was stoic. He, which... he was very stoic. And uh, Morris went up to the general and, and said, Dear General, I'm glad to see you looking so well, and slapped him on the back. Oh, dear. And he later said that the look Washington gave him was the worst moment of his life. And this is from a guy who had an, a leg amputated. Yeah, so, he, he'd you know, experienced th- some pain. There's a there's a monumental <laughs> reaction there from from uh, General Washington that uh, that uh, I, I, we can all picture. I think from yes. the pictures of Washington, you, he looks pretty uh, stern. And he was a very tall man, so perhaps he was looking down he, at, uh, at Governor Morris was, and saying yes. how. Yes. Of course, I don't want to put words in the mouth of our founding father, but how dare you? Yes, uh, I think the look certainly conveyed at least that. And uh, Morris was, was uh, a, a very smart guy. He, uh, he helped uh, invent the currency of the U.S. He invented the term cent. Uh, he was ambassador to, to uh, France at one point, and uh, bought a lot of uh, Marie Antoinette's furniture and shipped it back to the U.S. I don't know where it is now. Hey, uh, that would be interesting to know. Yes. So um, there was there was a lot going on then, uh, and 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 Morris Morris cap- encapsulated it in mm-hmm. that preamble, and I think that and, and in the arrangement, he he arranged it very logically, and and uh, uh, that was a huge contribution. That's so interesting. I, I'd never heard of Governor Morris. So once they signed these articles in 1787, then it had to go to the states. Correct. And each state uh, was to have a convention of elected delegates to, uh, to uh, 
decide whether to ratify the Constitution or not. And so uh, you had this wonderful debate going on all across uh, the 13 states. Not, it's not that big, actually. It's just a sliver along the Atlantic. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, was, it was the only place in the world that had any sort of self-representation. That's that so time. significant. This was the essence of democracy. That's right. right. Think about it. In 1787, the world was governed by kings, emperors, uh, tribal chiefs, You'd had the French Czars. Revolution. Well, the Revolution yeah. was, a, was starting. Yeah. yeah, the king was still around. Uh, so this was it. This was the sliver of, of democracy in the world at that time. And these people were, were all up and down the coast were debating about what kind of national government they wanted. How, how unusual and how amazing is that? Uh, so you know, eventually they had they had uh, had these elections, and and uh, you know some of the states ratified it very quickly, mm-hmm. and others were slower. And when they hit number nine, they still hadn't Virginia and, and Massachusetts still had not ratified it. So uh, that Virginia was the biggest and most populous state, and and Massachusetts probably, along with South Carolina, had the most trade, uh, with you know, Boston being the, the big harbor. And, and so those were very important states to, to buy in. Uh-huh. But they, they, they ratified it pretty soon afterward. Virginia ratified it very soon afterward, and Massachusetts was kind of waiting to see what Virginia did, and then they ratified <laughs> it. Kind of sounds a little bit like today on, on some topics. Remind me, did they have to have a unanimous participation at that time? Uh, now, under the Articles of Confederation, if you wanted to amend them, it had to be unanimous among all the 13 states. Okay. But uh, the, to wrap to ratify the Constitution and put it into effect, they specified that, that nine states would be enough. Okay. And in fact, you know, Rhode Island didn't ratify it until 1791, I think. They had other things going on. Uh, you know, they were, they were suspicious. They wanted to see if it worked first. Yeah, let's just play this out a little ways, yeah. then we'll sign on. During the debates in the states, there were different views on how things should be interpreted. And there were things that, were, that, that many thought were left out. Uh, for example, there were what we think of now as the Bill of Rights, a lot of uh, you know, guarantees of free speech, uh, no quartering of soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. things, things like that. That's all, that was all recommended by, by a number of states to be placed uh, in the document. And so when the first Congress met, one of their first duties was to was to come up with with a, a, a list of amendments, and and so Madison, of course, took the lead in that because that's the way Madison was, mm-hmm. and uh, he proposed a number of amendments, and others proposed amendments, and it got narrowed down to um, a dozen. Uh, two of them didn't pass. Uh, 
the states didn't adopt two of them. So, so we have our ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, uh, the Bill of Rights, and uh, the the order of the amendments is totally random. It has nothing to do with relative importance uh-huh. or anything like that. That's just how it came out. And the the debates on the some of the amendments are very interesting as to how the Constitution should be interpreted. There's there's what we now view as I believe the Tenth Amendment, which says mm-hmm. that uh, that the national government has the authority delegated to it by the document and prohibited to the states by the document. And there was a debate about whether to put the word expressly in front of the word uh-huh. delegated. Now, you think about it, you say uh, the national government has the power, powers that are expressly granted versus the national government has the powers granted. Uh, there's a big difference there. And... and uh, the word expressly clearly puts a, a strong limit mm-hmm. on on the powers of the national government. And that amendment was defeated handily in Congress. Uh, so you have to think, and certainly Madison did, that that they did not want the, those powers limited. They were they were okay with implied powers and and, and powers that you you derive from the language and implications uh-huh. of the words in the document. And you know from being chief deputy in the Tennessee Attorney General's office that, that cases um, involving you know, federal overreach are something that we're constantly managing. Uh, abso- absolutely. There's always, there's always been the debate on what kind of government we should have. And the Constitution is written such that we can go either direction. We can go a more limited government or we can go a a broader government as the circumstances require. I mean, we had had a more limited government at at times in this country. And, you know, beginning with FDR, there was a real expansion Mm -hmm. of of the, the powers of government and a rethinking of what, kind of government we needed and 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 we we moved to a more proactive government uh, rather than a than a reactive or or restricted government and some would argue some of those changes made the government way too big some would because it's it it's it's different philosophies of government and both are valid both both have their pluses both have their minuses and uh uh, it's it's uh, a fascinating debate that will never end. Many of the amendments seem to be based on lessons learned, right? You mentioned FDR and, and the expansion, and it, it wasn't long after that we had an amendment to limit the time in office yes, for a president. That's right. After FDR, uh, you know, was elected for, for four terms, he didn't serve all of his last term. But uh, there was an amendment that was added after that to uh, to limit the president to two terms, and you know there have been other lim- you know after after uh, President Kennedy was assassinated uh, and Vice President Johnson took office there was there was no vice president 
uh, and we passed an amendment, you know, that allowed the choosing of a new vice president if that position became vacant, which, which we've used. Uh, Spiro Agnew left office, resigned from office. And, yeah. Uh, it, so experience teaches us that we need to change things every now and then, and we do that. I thought this was fascinating. Um, you mentioned that in, in the early years, the federal government really didn't have uh, an effective way to raise money. And I guess at some point they're gaining income off of the tax on alcohol. And so after they were able to get the amendment passed uh, for a federal income tax, that's when prohibition came in because they didn't need the tax on the alcohol anymore. Um, I did not realize that, you know, just from history classes of a long time ago. Well, you know, the Constitution wasn't one of those things we studied a lot in the history class. And I don't think I ever took a history class in school that got past World War II (laughs) (laughs) because you got to the end of the school year by then. Yeah, yeah. And if you had snow days, you might not even get to that. that, That's right. That's right. So we have 27 amendments to the Constitution. Uh, it's very hard to get an amendment passed. Uh, we know that, you know, looking, looking back in history, to get two-thirds uh, of the states or of the House and the Senate. Um, just taking a look at the 19th Amendment and the significant role that Tennessee played in ratifying the vote for women. That's right. Tennessee was, uh, was the 36th state, and that's all you needed back then, 36. Uh, and and it was it was a a hard fought battle. Uh, other states uh, had that they thought might approve it had defeated it, and Tennessee was the last one that they thought they might have a chance. Uh, you know, Tennessee played a very important role. The attorney general's office played some role in that, and and it's all very interesting. In the amendment process is simple yet fraught with with uh, difficulties as well getting a, getting that number of states to agree to anything is yeah it's monumental because I'll have to look this up I don't know it off the top of my head but the 27th amendment did that pass in the 70s or 80s was that the one about pay Yes. Pay. Yes, and it was it was that like was an amendment. Actually, one of the twelve that yeah. was proposed back by by Congress back in in uh, in the first Congress, uh, but didn't pass back then. And uh, someone noticed that uh, it hadn't passed, but there was no time limit put on them. Right. So uh, it was it was then passed, and now Congress. Uh, like like the state of Tennessee, uh, you know, the congressmen cannot approve a raise for themselves mm-hmm. un- that takes effect until after the next election. Yeah, that that was nineteen ninety two. I was yeah. way off. <laughs> no, that was not. That was two hundred years later. You know, <laughs> right. it's, that's a long time. And, and you know, there there were some theories going on at the time that constitutional amendments should be approved in a relatively short period of time uh-huh. after they've been proposed because uh, circumstances might change. You know, is, is an approval by, say, Virginia in uh, 1792, you know, still a valid approval in, in 1992? 
mm-hmm. and the decision was was there was no time limit put on it. So yeah. sure, why yeah. not? Uh, they put time limits on most amendments now. As I recall, the ERA, yes. for example, had a time limit on it that that uh, that cut off uh, time for approval. That's right. Our country's going through so many hard things right now. What what role do you think that the Constitution plays now when we are in crisis? Well, the Constitution is still our founding document, and we have to look to it to see uh, what the authority of our national government is. And in some cases, ultimately, it will be up to the Supreme Court to decide. You know, there are people who think that... a, a you know, vaccinations, the national government can't mandate a vaccination program. And, uh, you know, I don't know how, how it was done in the past, but I remember lining up for the polio sugar cube uh-huh. and smallpox shots and, and everything else. And I, I don't recall there being a lot of choice back then, although, but I was a kid. And it, it would be interesting to look, look and see what the president for that was and whether that came from the states or the national government. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the national government has, has, you know, authority for the general welfare. How, how, how big is that? Right. You know, uh, is it big enough to, to justify or support a decision to have a national vaccination program? That's being know. debated. That's, big, that's, that's, that's yeah. one of the debates we have. Uh, so... There, you're right. There's a lot of things going on. I think probably if we stepped back in time to earlier times, we'd think there was a lot of stuff going on. What we call modern times bring out modern problems. You know, yes, in at the time of the Constitution, they did have a vaccination for smallpox. It was dangerous. Yeah, it was gruesome. <laughs> and it was gruesome. <laughs> And some people died from it during the time that Declaration of Independence was being written, 1776. Uh, John Adams' children were were vaccinated for smallpox, and one nearly died. Yeah. And and that the decision to do that fell on Abigail because she was taking care of the kids back home in in Massachusetts while John was was debating big things in the Continental Congress. I so. remember the miniseries. Yes, miniseries. <laughs> With Paul Giamatti. Yes, it was very good. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Judge Bennett, what would you tell school-age children who you know might have the chance, I hope, to, to listen to this podcast and think about the U.S. Constitution on Constitution Day? What, what do you think that young people in our country should know? Well, that's a really good question. I think the answer is each generation puts its stamp on the Constitution. You know, it begins we the people. And, and the younger generation that's coming of age now will be those people. Uh, there's a Jimmy Buffett song called We Are the People Our Parents Warned Us About. Uh, well, we're the people, the Const- they're the people the Constitution is envisioning. And they're going to have to decide what kind of rights immigrants have. They're going to have to decide what kind of rights LGBT people have. You know, those are the decisions that, that will probably last into the next generation. And there are other things that I, 
I can't even think of right now. That's right. And and what they have to do, they don't, you know, some of them will run for office. Most of them won't. Most of them will be citizens of this country. And as a citizen of this country, you should keep apprised of what's going on. And you should let your elected representatives know what you think. I think as long as they grow up to be good citizens who, who pay attention to things, try and, and come up with the best, the best solutions to these problems that we can, we'll be all right. Judge Bennett, thank you so much for coming on Making the Case. I want to let our listeners know that if you're interested in learning more about the U.S. Constitution, and we hope that you are, you can go to constitutioncenter.org. Also, the U.S. National Archives, loads of wonderful information on that website. That's at archives.gov. Thank you for joining us.